1: Welcome to Your Books in critical theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Susan Kahn, who's Associate Dean and Dean of Arts in Yale College, about her new book, Mounting frustration The Art Museum in the Age of Black Power, which is published by Duke University Press. Welcome to Your Books in critical theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Susan Kahn, who is Dean for the Arts in Yale College. Uh, she's an art historian uh, and she's written a fascinating and actually, I think, really important new book. Called Mounting Frustration, the Art Museum in the Age of Black Power. So wel- welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, as I say, I think this is a really timely book in a way that it's obviously a, a historical work, but it speaks to debates that are really live at the moment, both uh, in the States, but also in Europe. And I think a really good place to start is with, um, I think, quite a complicated term, but a term that allows us root into the core ideas in the book. Uh, and this is about black art. So what what does this term mean? And, uh, and I guess kind of why does the contested nature of the term um, lead into a, a really rich and an important text?
0: Well, uh, you point out very rightly that the term black art is contested and it, it was contested in the timeframe that the book covers, which is really from the mid '60s uh, through the early '70s, and the term I, I would not I would not attempt to define what black art is, mainly because it is such a debated topic. It its meanings ranged uh, in the '60s from simply um, a name to describe work made by artists who uh, were identified as African-American to an actual art movement, um, the black arts movement, which had a very overtly political agenda and really saw art as an instrument for social and political change. So the area of black art or the arena of black art enters into my book in the sense that I'm looking at different ways in which The term black art was used by institutions that were showcasing work by African-American artists and were bringing African-American artists into the museum's uh, institutional context. One of the defining concepts that, that I identified is that the term black art could be empowering when used by artists themselves, but could be pigeonholing or marginalizing when applied by the dominant institutions. That, that tension,
1: I think, is really fascinating, actually, about self-definition and control uh, over the kind of the sense of representation and then the use um, of these currents by dominant institutions. And it's something that, that the book um, deals with, I think, quite, quite well up, up front quite early on, is the idea that the art world was, you know, comparatively segregated um, into the 1960s and 70s, you know, it was, you don't do this in the book, but the thing that sprung to mind was the kind of um, the narrative of something like baseball desegregating the 40s and 50s, but the art world, you know, 20 years later was still a comparatively segregated space. Um, And obviously there's, you know, kind of legal examples from schooling and stuff like that. So why was the art world this kind of segregated space um, in the time period you're writing about?
0: Well, I think that the fact of segregation in the United States was and is very real and was present in all sectors of society. But I think that what distinguishes the art world still even today is, although to a lesser extent than in the 1960s, that arts institutions were founded by and were primarily dependent upon patronage from a wealthy elite uh, that really didn't have much interest in integration and What happened during the 1960s that made museums really begin to turn to looking at a broader constituency of artists had to do with changes in patronage, had to do with the creation of public funding organizations here. Um, First, the very first public funding organization was the New York State Council on the Arts, founded in 1960, and that became a model for the National Endowment for the Arts in 1965. And in order to qualify for public funding, institutions had to begin to demonstrate that they were serving a broader constituency uh, rather than a kind of narrow spectrum of society. But I think that, that patronage was a very, very important issue. And I think another factor that led to the kind of delay in museums desegregating is that they aren't regulated uh, in the same way that certain other sectors of society are. Um, I think about desegregation of the military. Um, Here's a government institution. Museums are not government institutions. For the most part, uh, they are private institutions, and so they weren't subject to the same public mandates that some other institutions in American society were. The the other thing that's interesting, and
1: we'll come, come back to this towards... Uh, the end, as you do in in, in the book, is, I guess, the kind of uh, the role of particular kinds of aesthetic philosophy in this segregation as well, and how the privileging of uh, particularly kind of Western narratives of art history are really important in that story. And and I think one way to kind of get into the examples that the book uh, uses, you know, the kind of institutional examples, is to think through what had been going on around attempts to represent African-American work before um, or maybe in the period leading up to um, your discussions. And and you talk about how um, there was a a tension between kind of mainstream acceptance, you know, the kind of the work of African-Americans being placed front and centre in the galleries, but also this idea about culturally specific Approaches, you know, kind of exhibitions that were just about African American art, and maybe didn't have the kind of the same status as placing them in in the mainstream.
0: Yes, well, throughout the 20th century, there had been waves uh, of integration in museums. For the most part, museums were not showing any work by African American artists. And as a result of that, there were institutions and organizations that developed. Um, as places where particularly African-American artists, but also other artists of color, you know, could go and make art and show art. Uh, Augusta Savage had a fantastic studio that is in representative of this. But, but the waves of integration came usually in, uh, during periods where there was a political backdrop that created heightened sensitivity and heightened research. So we see this in the early 1940s. We see this in the early 1970s. We see this in the early 1990s, and I dare say that we're seeing it again today um, in uh, as part of the Black Lives Matter movement. But I think that the major difference between the pre the let's say pre 1968 moment or or era. And I use 1968 as a turning point because that was the year that the Studio Museum in Harlem was founded. And the post-1968 period is that major museums begin to take a very deliberate interest in helping to create culturally specific museums um, starting in the mid-60s and then continuing on a mass scale in the early 1970s as I describe in the book, the Studio Museum in Harlem was founded with the participation of some members of uh, what was called the Junior Council, some uh, philanthropic supporters of the Museum of Modern Art. And it was founded really as a, uh, an offshoot of the museum, a sort of unofficial offshoot. These offshoot, um, these satellite museums, were also founded in Washington, D.C., the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum, and in Boston, an offshoot of the uh, Boston Museum of Fine Arts, the National uh, Afro-American Museum, directed by uh, Edmund Barry Gaither. And, And so this is a decisive difference. You know, major museums taking an interest in the creation of alternatives, alternatives to integration. And in the book, I talk about this as being both an asset to artists of color who now have more venues to show their work, hospitable venues to show their work, but also a way in which one, and not to over-dramatize this, but a way in which the major museums were also able through this to kind of dodge a bullet and to avoid Uh, fully integrating in the way that some artists and others were advocating for. So this is a major transformation. And if there's one thing that I think is, you know, really one of the most important themes or points that the book tries to make is that there is a period before the civil rights movement, the late civil rights movement, and a period after the late civil rights movement in museums that we can periodize our field. And I I also, in addition to being an educator and an art historian, uh, I also have been a museum curator and a museum manager. You know, our field really can be divided into eras. And the era that we are living in now really came out of the crucible of the late 60s and the early 70s. And this development of this two-tiered system really characterizes the era that we're living in now. Uh, and I guess actually the
1: the book's examples show some disastrous failures, but some qualified successes in in the development of uh, of that era. And, and as you've identified the the potential spaces for African American work, but also the the limitations of uh, and, and maybe the kind of the boundaries still drawn by the major institutions. Yes. And maybe we could take the examples in turn. So you mentioned the studio museum in your, uh, your initial kind of setting of the scene. So why was that so uh, so important? And, and how does it illustrate those kind of tensions that are around the museum in, in the late 1960s?
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's an important institution because it was uh, one of the f- first, if not the first, um, museum that, uh, after a, a period of, of a couple of years of ch- uh, chaos and self-examination, um, became a beacon for museums of African American art, uh, it is now in my opinion the leading museum of African American art uh, in certainly in in the world if, and, and the United States. The studio Museum was a very controversial institution uh, in its early days because its initial exhibition program was designed to actually be multi Uh, let me put it this way, heterogeneous, it was not designed initially, conceived or designed as a specifically African-American museum. And during the moment of its founding, now that was, it was originally conceived in 1965 when the civil rights movement uh, had not really um, transitioned into the black power movement to the extent that it later would. Um, so between the time the Studio Museum was conceived and the time that it opened three years later in 1968, September of 68, the political climate in the, the U.S. had changed a lot. And uh, ideologically, the having an integrated museum in the center of Harlem in 1968 was just objectionable to a lot of artists who were living in that area and who felt that that this represented a kind of infiltration, uh, almost a kind of, you know, neo-colonialist infiltration of the Harlem neighborhood. Uh, This was happening concurrent with other developments in Harlem that were very problematic, like the Uh, consideration of closing the Arthur A. Schomburg Center for the Study of Black Culture. Then it was called the Schomburg Library, a a branch of the New York City Public Library located on 135th Street, just a few blocks from the Studio Museum in Harlem. And the sense that, the sense of self-determination among African-American artists had become much more, very, very important by 68. And so the studio, the museum was a contested institution. Uh, it went through many changes in its early years, and eventually, under the leadership of Ed Spriggs, who was appointed director in 1969, it uh, consolidated under its current, uh, it, it, its then formulated and now current uh, institutional program, which is to be a home for artists of uh, African descent. But at that time, as I said, I mean this this took some Sifting out in order for that mission to be clarified. Uh, I guess if, if that's an example of
1: perhaps if not a benevolent, but but you know a kind of a positive and progressive uh, sifting out. The, the the clear contrast is uh, with Harlem on my mind uh, at the Met, and I mean the impression I get of that from uh, the discussion in the book that essentially that that was you know sort of disastrous, showing the Met sort of. Um, I think I, I mentioned to you, know, the kind of the, the blindness to institutional uh, and aesthetic racial politics. So so it'd be interesting to hear both about Harlem On My Mind as an exhibition, but also how it contrasts with the process that the Studio Museum had gone through.
0: Yeah, well, you know, Harlem, I, I, OK, in, in all fairness, uh, there are those who consider Harlem On My Mind a breakthrough in museum practice, because it was an exhibition that showcased the history of Harlem during the 20th century, starting, you know, it was organized sort of decade by decade, showing how Harlem had uh, developed since, since uh, 1900. And it did that exclusively through the use of photographic reproductions, video projections, audio that was piped into the galleries, It was a multimedia exhibition. It was one of the first of its kind. And there are some people who who consider it to be a phenomenal accomplishment, phenomenally good accomplishment. But that, what some consider to be its primary contribution to museum practice at that time was exactly the thing that uh, many people felt was its tragic flaw. And, and, that that tragic flaw was that the exhibition failed to include work, artwork, by African-Americans. It presented historical documentation, and by doing so, it implied that there was no African-American art worthy of being shown at the Metropolitan Museum. It was a very strange decision for the Met. The Met had never done any shows like it before. It had never even shown photography before, let alone photographic reproductions. So the primary controversy around that exhibition had to do with, from from the perspective of um, cultural inclusivity, had to do with the way in which that show drew a sharp, you know, uh, reinforced, reinscribed that very sharp line between what the art world called art and the work of African-Americans. It was as if the work of African-Americans just simply didn't qualify as art. There was a lot of reaction, very strong negative reaction to that, uh, there were negotiations between arts activists who eventually formed into the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, which was spearheaded by Benny Andrews and, and artist Cliff Joseph. Uh, and after the negotiations failed, the artists staged protests and very public protests that brought a great deal of attention to the exhibition. Um, and then there were other controversial aspects of it having to do with Black-Jewish relations that then landed the show on the cover of the New York Times. And so this publicity around these protests has made the show much more a sort of, it stands out in, in much higher relief in history than it, it may have otherwise. It, it became a lightning rod for m- many complaints about the limitations of the art world at that time.
1: You, you mentioned Sorry. there the, um, the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, and I think that. It's quite a useful uh, bridge point to your discussion of the Whitney because obviously they were involved in discussions with the Whitney as well. And it's it's interesting how the Whitney seems to have a sort of uh, a different model of relations with the African-American art world and it stages contemporary black artists in America. But you also talk through how the Whitney has a certain kind of self-serving agenda uh, with this with this exhibition.
0: Uh, Yeah, the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition was formed in uh, the process of negotiating with the Met. And once the Harlem on My Mind exhibition opened, um, the artists in the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition determined that the next institution that they would try to impact was the Whitney Museum of American Art, because that was the museum that defined what American art was. And so they went into the belly of the beast. Um, if if these artists had been excluded from the notion of African-American culture at the Met, the idea was that they would begin talking with the leaders of the Whitney Museum uh, to see how they could establish their place at the institution that really defined what American art was.
1: In terms of that 1971 exhibition, which I think... Does the protest around that provide the the picture for the front cover of the book
0: oh yeah it um, <laughs> yeah,
1: gives a, a really clear and vivid sense actually of the uh, of the kind of protest that you 're talking about. Could you tell me a bit about contemporary black artists in america and and I guess kind of what that represented, but also what the what the limitations of that exhibition were
0: yeah, well, contemporary black artists in america was uh, well when when the black emergency cultural Coalition approached the Whitney in um, early 1969 to engage and to advocate that the museum engage more fully with African-American artists, they had several things that they were interested in accomplishing. They wanted the museum to acquire more work by African-American artists. They wanted a major exhibition of work by African-Americans, and they wanted it to be curated by someone who had intimate knowledge, not only of the artwork, but also of the uh, life experience of Black person in America at that time. Um, they did not actually come out and say that, that they insisted that the curator be African American, but that was the implication. The museum refused to uh, fulfill that particular condition. And The archival research that I did, and I I just want to mention parenthetically, and maybe we can circle back to this, that the archival research that I did was incredibly important because it really documents the material that I I was able to uncover, really documents the -the behind-the-scenes machinations that led to the public decisions. And by the time a decision was made public, it had already been kind of sugar-coated. It had already been you know, uh, reviewed and edited and editorialized and run by lawyers. <laughs> but but really, the fact of the matter is that the Whitney as an institution wanted to fulfill some of the conditions of, of that the artists were asking without really engaging in profound institutional change. And so what we see leading up to the Contemporary Black Artists in America exhibition, which opened in April 1971, is a pattern A striking pattern of tokenism in which the museum would typically include uh, one artist of color in its group shows, in its thematic shows. And the archives indicate that that the museum was really kind of saving up the African-American artists to present all together in, in one big exhibition that would in and of itself be a kind of token exhibition. The fact that the exhibition was placed in the hands of a curator who was already working at the museum, Robert Doty, who really didn't have much expertise in work by African-American artists. Um, He had a lot of expertise in photography. He was really interested in figural painting, but he didn't really know the artists whose work he was exploring. And that became clear to a lot of the artists whose studios he visited um, based on the types of questions that he asked. And, just based on his research methods that seemed to take a lot of uh, suggestions from external parties. And and so he would go into an artist studio, and this is described in, in letters and in uh, interviews. He would go into artist studios already having been sort of coached by some a couple of advisors that he had, you know, as to what he should be looking at. And he didn't, the artist felt that he wasn't really engaging in a genuine dialogue about their work. And so when the exhibition was um, advancing toward its opening date. The Black Emergency Cultural Coalition felt that even though it had instigated the show, that it could not stand behind the end product. And gradually, the artists in the BECC who had been uh, advising the museum, who had been in dialogue with the museum, gradually they began to remove their names uh, from the list of advisors, and then artists began dropping out. One of the things that I discovered is that previous reports had indicated that about 15 of the 75 artists who were in the show dropped out. That number really was closer to about 22, 23. The museum did not make public just how the, the magnitude of the rejection of that exhibition. And I think that the critical issue that was Problematic with contemporary Black artists in America is that the curator who was put in charge of that show fundamentally did not engage with the artists on their own terms, and so you know we we have a very sophisticated understanding of the importance of curatorial frameworks. Now we've we have. Curatorial studies, museum studies, as academic disciplines. Now um, we have a canon of literature uh, of institutional critique, and and in, in museum studies, and you know, from our perspective today, we see that exhibitions are framing devices that imbue works with content that the artwork itself, its meanings, are affected by the context in which in which it's placed, and I think that. This exhibition is very instrumental in uh, being a lesson in how an exhibition can present artwork in ways that are counter to artists' intentions. Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with an institution, I think, you know, an institutional framework or a curatorial concept that you know put puts artwork in a context for a particular to make a particular point or or to creatively reinterpret that work, but the problem was <laughs> that this, this exhibition was taking place at a period of time in which self-determination was absolutely critical to the notion of civil rights and human rights. And it was not a moment in time when a curator was going to instrumentalize artwork or put that artwork to work for his own ends without coming in for a great deal of criticism and rejection. By example carries through
1: I I think into how you discuss MoMA's um, I I think one of the terms is the kind of ambivalent relationship uh, that MoMA has to to African-American artists and it it might be interesting to think about how MoMA maybe did um, some progressive things in terms of being and Hunt's exhibitions but also by you know the kind of the end of the period that you're really interested in uh, had had actually done some you know things that were quite quite ruinous to um, to the cause of uh, representation of African American artists. So I wonder if we could take those two things in turn with MoMA, the kind of the moments of Bearden and Hunt, and you know the kind of critical reaction, but also positive noises around those ex- exhibitions. But then consider. Um, primitivism in 20th century art, which is obviously a kind of highly charged and and deeply problematic moment for MoMA.
0: Yeah. Well, the the MoMA chapter, um, and just we we haven't really told the listeners, but briefly explain that the book is divided into four uh, key chapters, each of which deals with a different museum. And, you know, David, you're talking us through this, the first one with the Studio Museum, the second one with the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the third with the Whitney Museum of American Art, and the last uh, chapter um, before a very um, uh, important epilogue, the last chapter deals with the Museum of Modern Art. And, and I'll tell you, the mu- chapter on the Museum of Modern Art was absolutely the hardest one to write because the the story of the Museum of Modern Art is has been rewritten so many times from different perspectives that I really needed to go back and educate myself about you know, what it was doing in its early days, what its relationship was to the notion of primitivism, which is, as you say, becomes a very contested term, and, and the primitivism exhibition, Primitivism in 20th Century Art, Affinity of the Tribal and the Modern, uh, 1984, becomes a very contested exhibition. The museum had, had was founded, its founding director, Alfred Barr, uh, was, was not, The same, did not have the same curatorial vision that informed the Primitivism show done by William Rubin in 1984, although Alfred Barr laid the foundation for that show in some ways because of his interest in art from various historical periods and art from world cultures. So I'm going to start there and then, you know, work my way up to your question about Bearden and Hunt. Alfred Barr, who was the founding director of the museum, began it in 1929. Um, Was very interested in a characteristic of 20th century art that had to do with its lack of uh, what he called verisimilitude, the fact that it didn't look realistic. And so Barr was, in fact, interested in the museum having the Museum of Modern Art eventually building multiple collections, one of which would have consisted of work from Africa, from Asian cultures from Coptic uh, art that had influenced modern artists and resembled in many ways, the abstract nature of modern art. Barr was an art activist and educator who was concerned about the fact that the general population did not seem to accept abstraction as a legitimate mode of expression. And what Barr was interested in doing was demonstrating that abstraction has been present in art for many cultures, or else not abstraction in the way that we think of it, but the lack of verisimilitude, lack of Western realism was something that existed in art for many cultures. And he felt that if audiences were exposed to this broad range of art, that, it, that they would more easily accept uh, modern art, modern art that didn't look realistic. So that was his one of, one of his missions. And that mission led to his bringing into the museum uh, through his own curating and through guest curators uh, a whole series of exhibitions that dealt with what at that time they did call primitive art. Um, and primitive was the term that was used to describe uh, work by artists that looked like this uh, non-representational work, um, but was itself modern. So that was the backdrop to the primitiv- primitivism exhibition of 1984. The problem with the primitiv- primitivism exhibition of 1984 is that by the time William Rubin recuperates this interest that had been declared by Alfred Barr, there were there was much evidence that artists uh, of African descent, had been engaging in the discussion of their relationship to specifically to African art and that those engagements and conversations uh, both written in discursive conversations, as well as uh, artistic conversations in, in terms of various influences and various artistic experiments. Those were completely left out of the primitivism show. And that was, there were blind spots that really were unconscionable for uh, a museum to allow by 1984. Even you know, if one considers the history of African American artists' engagement with African forms in the late 1960s and the early 70s, um, the fact that that artists of many American African American artists had been traveling to Africa to study African art the fact that all of this was uh, was excluded from the primitivism exhibition was really just strikingly retrograde so there there's that trajectory of development at MoMA that I think is very interesting and and frankly I thought that there really was Nothing more that could be said about the Primitivism show that, that had not already been said. It was one of the most written about exhibitions. I've, I personally, I was working at MoMA at the time that that show took place. So I was following all of the controversies and the criticism. There have been books published on it. And I thought, well, there's just, there, there's really nothing more that can be said. And in fact, I was shocked to find that there was more that could be said. Um, because what was left out of the Primitivism exhibition, I think would not that whole that whole scene <laughs> around that show would not have been would not have occurred had certain decisions, different decisions been made at MoMA in the early 70s. So I'm gonna circle back to the early 70s when the museum realized that given everything going on in the country, in terms of the Black Power movement, integration, the push for integration the protests and the activities of the other museums, major museums, that MoMA really had to engage in some way. In 1970, John Hightower was appointed director, and he was very, he had previously been the, the executive director of the New York State Council on the Arts, so he had a very strong public conscience, had a lot of connections to a very broad community of artists, and he he wanted the museum to jump into this situation and try to, quote, get it right, you know, try to avoid the mistakes and the pitfalls of some of the other museums. And he uh, advocated for there to be a duo, a duet of exhibitions at MoMA, two concurrent one-person shows of work by Romare Bearden, probably the most, or at least one of the two most prominent living African-American artists at the time. Um, and also uh, the artist Richard Hunt. John Hightower was very interested in seeing how the Museum of Modern Art could really get it right uh, with making its exhibition program more heterogeneous and more inclusive. He actually actually had close relationships with many of the activist artists of the time, including Faith Ringgold um, and Rafael Ortiz, um, Tom Lloyd, these were artists who were part of the Artworkers' Coalition, uh, which is not sort of a complicated institution in and of itself. Uh, but, but John Hightower was very interested in working with the artists to figure out a way that the museum could, uh, could get it right. And so based on the recommendation of the Artworkers' Coalition, the museum did decide to undertake uh, these two one-person shows, shows of work by Romare Bearden and Richard Hunt. The Bearden Show was very well received. Bearden was long overdue for a survey of his work. He had been working for decades. He was a leader in in every sense of the word, uh, as an artist, as a, as a curator in his own right, as an advocate. He had been very important in even the WPA arts programs. Um, Richard Hunt, by contrast, was quite young, even though he had seen success very early in his career. Uh, Even as he was completing um, his graduate degree, uh, he had his first exhibition right out of school. And one interesting fact about these artists' work is that Bearden's work was relatively representational and Hunt's work is relatively abstract. And so I think the Museum of Modern Art was kind of hedging its bets by putting these two artists together. One was very senior, one was very young. Uh, So there was this, um, you know, kind of balancing act that I think that the the museum was trying to achieve. Unfortunately, Richard Hunt came, that that exhibition came in for a lot of criticism uh, because Richard Hunt was an artist who had articulated publicly and most notably in a symposium that had been held at the Met in 1968 that he was not at all interested in racial politics, that in fact he didn't consider himself a quote black artist. He considered himself an artist and that he felt that he hadn't really experienced um, much oppression as an artist, that he had had ample opportunities and some of the arts activists who were looking to change museums did not feel that he should have been rewarded for their struggles, that here was someone who felt that pretty much everything was okay in the art world. Uh, And, and that his repudiation of a nationalist agenda, his repudiation of uh, identifying himself in racialized terms uh, was seen as something as a slap in the face to artists who had been fighting for this and struggling for the inclusion of African-American artists. So, so the, the developments at MoMA were uh, less controversial publicly uh, than the developments than the activities at the Metropolitan Museum uh, and at the Whitney Museum. But again, going back to the archival research, you know, when uh, one looks at uh, the correspondence between the director of the museum and 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 some of the artists, and one one really digs deep into the tensions uh, between African American artists, not only between activist artists and museums you know one sees that this was not uh necessarily the uh unequivocal success story that other histories might have made it out to be the idea is, is really interesting actually that you know the kind of success
1: narrative being underpinned by some some tensions and, and that's really i think where you you conclude the book actually and you give a couple of examples of you know supposed kind of success stories for in, individuals which actually tell us something about the way that um you know there were there was not profound changes as you say within the major museums but actually the museum system itself was reconfigured um yes. and it's you know the kind of the alternative spaces places like uh, the studio museum that have allowed african american and then beyond that other minority artists and artistic practices to flourish, but really the kind of, you know, the big institutions are not the same as they were in the 60s and 70s, but, you know, are sort of still with us to an extent unchanged.
0: Well, uh, you know, we're in a very interesting moment right now. And, you know, a lot of us who are concerned about museums as Sites of not only art, but sites of political contestation because of the power of art to shape ideas about culture uh, and to move people's culture out into the world in a public way, in a framed, interpreted way. You know, those of us who care about museums are, are we're talking about. Know, are we in a moment now where, as uh, larger numbers of artists of color are being given platforms in museums, are being given exhibitions in museums, we're beginning to see a younger generation of uh, people of color moving, being being hired into curatorial positions. Um, we haven't really seen much changes in the higher levels of museums and some, some changes on boards of trustees, although the power dynamics may not have changed all that much. You know, we're, we're wondering, we're waiting and wondering, you know, is this going to be another another blip on the screen? Is this going to be another another crest of the wave like, well, like we saw in the 1940s and the 1970s and the early 1990s? Or is there something that's fundamentally changing about uh, major institutions at this point? I don't know. I, I'm. I'm. Uh, it, it's very hard to have a sense of history when, when you're living right through it. But I think that you know the the point that I, I'm making in the book about uh, institutional change and uh, in, internal institutional change and larger systemic change is that one outcome of the activism of the '60s and '70s was that museums, uh, many museums, created special spaces to show work by emerging artists. And those were the spaces that tended to be the sites where work by artists of color was typically shown. So we, we begin to see uh, matrix programs, the projects gallery at the museum of modern art, the lobby gallery at the Whitney museum. And what I conclude is that those spaces drew a, a kind of color line within the museums themselves. Uh, think, it was actually even worse during the early '70s because um, Benny Andrews wrote a, wrote an incredibly acerbic and, and witty article about. For for a period in the early 1970s, a lot of museums began to show work by artists of color in their eating spaces. <laughs> so the Met had a gallery in their junior museum snack bar, and that was the place where uh, artists of color were shown. The Mo- MoMA had a penthouse gallery for its uh, art lending service, and that was a place where, in the early '70s, you you could print much always know you would you would see work by artists of color there. And, you know, Benny Andrews wrote this amazingly scathing, satirical newspaper piece about that. You know, the, obviously the point there is that these were marginal spaces. These were not, the, the, this was not the, the main stage of the museum. These were backroom spaces. So, you know, to a certain extent, I think that museums still are internally segregated, although, as I said, think things are getting a little bit better. We can do data analysis. I'm, I'm very Data driven in my own scholarship, and and see. Okay, so is there still a pattern of tokenism that we can detect? I am afraid that in many institutions there is. In the larger art system, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the the major shift in the art world is this vast proliferation of what I'm shorthandedly calling culturally specific, or what some have called culturally grounded museums and arts or smaller arts organizations, and. You used the word "alternative" before. I think that uh, you know, in the early days, these were called many of these places were called alternative institutions. But what uh, what's happening now is that many institutions that are focusing on specific or identifying specific cultures that they're focusing on um, because many people have pointed out that the museum of modern art is a culturally specific museum. It's culture is Western Europe. So when I, but I think we know what we mean when we use that term to describe cultures beyond uh, Western European cultures. I think the major trend now is that a lot of museums that are focusing on specific cultures are not alternative at all. They are actually very large, important, often civic institutions. And I'm thinking now of the National Museum of African American History and Culture that will be opening this year, that will be one of the largest museums within the Smithsonian system. I'm thinking of the National Museum of African American History and Culture that's opening this this year. I'm thinking of the new developments at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Uh, the Studio Museum is looking to expand and improve its building. So these institutions are no longer alternative. Many of them are becoming major. And I think that that is one of the most interesting developments that we'll see now. And one hopes that we can arrive at a place in our society in which the so-called you know, culturally specific museum is viewed as being as universal, as meaningful, as relevant to our uh, entire human and world community as any other museum as the so-called encyclopedic museum has been viewed in the past.
1: Thanks for listening to me with in Critical Theory. We've been discussing Mounting Prostration: the Art Museum in the Age of Black Power, published by Duke University Press, which is written by Susan Collins.